Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us now, we are very pleased to say, is Jim Anderson. He is Chief Executive Officer of Social Flow in New York. Uh, just to be fully transparent, Social Flow is a platform used by Bloomberg for social media purposes. Jim, thank you so much for being here. You've already read the prepared statement, which uh, Sundar Pichai has just delivered. Yep. From your perspective, what are the most important things that he should address when he does uh, get these questions from representatives? Well, I think first and foremost, he did exactly what you said. He waved the big American flag. He did what you want to do. You talk about the possibility and the optimism of technology, you know, the story about not having to ride a bus for two hours to find out your blood results. I mean, those are true and authentic stories. And we, it's certainly to his interest to try to emphasize that and make sure that people don't lose sight of the good. That being said, we're about to get the rest of the story, right? And they've got a lot of things to worry about, whether it be privacy, whether it be the alleged bias against conservatives, whether it be sort of the EU issues and just data in, in general. You know, there's a lot of things that I'm sure we're about to, to hear a lot of fairly pointed questions about. But Jim... The whole purpose of the hearing is, excuse me, is not the point of the good. Right. Right? I mean, the idea is to figure out where the data goes. Well, uh, that is absolutely one uh, very important thing. And I think uh, ultimately that, that data and privacy issue is one of the most foundational ones. I'm not sure that's going to be the biggest issue. I think you're going to hear a lot about the alleged bias against conservatism. We've talked about that before, this idea of shadow banning. If I type in social into Google because I'm the CEO of Social Flow, I want it to autocomplete Social Flow. It's more likely, though, to autocomplete Social Security because that's a more common search than Social Flow. And so you, you get these anecdotes. Do you believe there's a bias when it comes to search results? I, I don't, actually. I, I truly, first off, you can't prove a negative. I can't prove that there's no bias. And again, there's billions and billions of search results. And, and what really constitutes well, bias? But Google could prove it. I'm and not sure Google could prove a really? negative, right? Because think about it. Your search and my search are different, right? It's, it, unless we're using an anonymous, anonymous browser in incognito mode, Google knows a lot about you. Google knows a lot about me. So actually, when I search for social, it may actually autocomplete social flow because Google knows that I search for social flow a lot. I, I don't think Google could demonstrably prove that they never discriminate a, against anyone. What do you think is the main issue? Is it privacy? I do think it's, it's privacy and data, and I think we can get... Look to the EU as to what's going on. Different regulatory construct, different sort of cultural expectations. But I think that is the vanguard of what you're going to see in the rest of the world, too. And, and not just privacy, but also antitrust. Uh, think about it. So Google is being accused of effectively bundling, right? Uh, the Android operating system and Google Maps, you're, you're sort of uh, inappropriately bundling those together. Does, is anybody other than me think that's exactly what happened to Microsoft two decades ago, right? It was Windows operating system and Internet Explorer. The Department of Justice in the U.S. said you're inappropriately bundling those. It took 20 years for Microsoft to effectively recover from that. And they've done so quite nicely, but in a very different way with cloud computing, et cetera. So I think that's that and some combination of the privacy and data are really where you're going to see the big focus for Google. I'm not sure, though, today in the testimony that's going to be the big area of focus. Is there also a necessary focus on the dominance that Google has in search? 
Absolutely. I mean, and I think any of those antitrust points is predicated on a dominant position, right? The, the reason the Microsoft issue was so big was they were so dominant. I think that's exactly right. Google is incredibly dominant in that regard. So the implication here in the Microsoft analogy is that there is going to be a big effort to break up Google for its dominance. Uh, I well, don't see where the political pressure comes from. That, there. That's a remedy. I'm not. I'm not jumping all the way to remedy. I think first you have to prove that there's an issue, and I think that's going to start and continue in the EU. I think you're exactly right. I don't see the political pressure in the U.S. building for any kind of breakup anytime in the near future. I think that's not in the cards. But it's a big world out there. Google is a global company. Global company. So I, I think what happens in the EU could very well propagate elsewhere. First, uh, you know, beyond the, the U.S., and then ultimately maybe in a little bit of a different political climate back here to the states. Is it worth noting that this does not just take place on your mobile device, but also on whatever devices you use at home, whether they are television monitors or PCs or some kind of computer? I think that's exactly right. So, you know, Amazon Echo, obviously different company, different competitor. And it is worth bringing up, by the way, I think one of Google's big risks here is actually not necessarily just the government and regulation, but Amazon. So Google knows what you search for. Amazon knows what you buy. So there aren't a lot of companies that, that Google is afraid of, given their size and scale, but I, I'm sure they're paying a lot of attention to what Amazon is doing. And, but, but your core point about the devices, you know, the connected home, everything, it's not just a mobile device, it's not just a computer, it's everything that's connected to the internet. All right, so you said that uh, it's very difficult to prove a negative, that there is not bias. Can uh, Google prove that it is doing everything that it can to prevent foreign actors from interfering in elections? That's a tough one as well. I mean, these are two sides of the same coin, right? At the same time, Google is being criticized for alleged bias against uh, conservatives. It's also being accused of not doing enough to protect against hate speech, right? And, and by the way, their advertisers, which is how they make all their money, are the ones who are principally concerned with that. Who wants their advertising associated with hate speech or potentially offensive videos? Well, you know, the, 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 the implication there is that Google needs to play a heavier hand and be more controlling about the type of speech that's allowed on its platform. But when you talk about alleged bias against conservatives, well, now you're, you're putting your heavy hand to work in a, in a biased way. And these are issues. I mean, they're not technology issues. They're policy issues, right? And they're values issues. So, I, again, you can't prove And they're these First things. Amendment issues. They really are. Free speech versus you know, hate speech, right? Where's the one begin and the other uh, end? As far as the hearing uh, is concerned, do you believe that this is more of a show for the people asking the questions or... Is this something that Google can really come away with with a gold star? Well, I, I would say it's going to be very tough for them to come away with a gold star. I think all political hearings like this or congressional hearings have an element of show because politics is showmanship or show personship. Um, so, I, you know, if, if he can just not avoid making a serious misstep, that's probably a win. I do think his prepared remarks were, were sort of mercifully short. I mean, so it doesn't appear that he's trying a run, run out the clock strategy to just keep talking until the time is up. We'll see whether the questions and answers uh, uh, you know, sort of follow that. But I, I thought it was really interesting that it was such a short set of prepared remarks. What's the one question you'd ask him? I would focus on the data and say, what are your values? What are your policies about data and, and privacy? And I might just stop right there and let, let him give an, as an expansive an answer as he's willing to. Thanks very much for being with us. Jim Anderson is the chief executive of Social Flow. And in full disclosure, Social Flow is a platform that is used by Bloomberg for social media purposes.
The price of oil moves higher today. It is up more than 2% right now. $52 for a barrel of oil on the NYMEX. Natural gas, though, going the other way down, more than 3.25%. Here to tell us all about the energy complex, Neil Dingman. He is Managing Director for Energy for SunTrust Robinson Humphrey. Also joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Wells Fitzpatrick, also Managing Director as well as, uh, and he covers exploration and production research for SunTrust Robinson Humphrey. They are both from Houston, and we're glad to have them here. All thanks, right, thanks, so you're you. great to have you. All right, so let's just dive right into it. Um, $52 a barrel for West Texas, $60 a barrel for Brent, and you've got nat gas, you know, under $4.5 per million BTU. What do those prices do to the companies you cover? I, th- I think for most of us, they might say their break-even, they'll suggest the break-even is in the 40s. But from what we're hearing, when the new budgets come out for 19, you're going to see cuts. Um, you've already saw, um, who was it earlier this week, just a day or two ago, Conoco, one of the very largest that we don't follow, but talk about um, single-digit growth and returning share- shareholder uh, value. And again, I think that's going to be a common trend, even with our smaller companies. So I think overall, Pim, you're going to see a lot more cuts um, as long as oil is anything under $60. Wells, what's the pain point at which E&P companies have to start going out of business again? Yeah, going out of business is, is tough. You really have had the balance sheets improve dramatically since we saw the last slug of those uh, roll through. But I think Neil's right. I mean, uh, to that point, you had 10 oil rigs drop out last week. That's the biggest one week drop since we've had in 16. So these, these year-over-year estimates going into 19 for U.S. oil growth are, are almost surely overstated, and probably largely so. Combine that with the OPEC plus cuts and a little bit more from Iran and Canada, and all of a sudden you're in a pretty decent position. So, Neil, what characterizes a company that you want to be buying stock in? I, I think one that has a very low break-even, Pim, and one that, you know, we look at a couple like uh, a Magnolia and the Eagle Ford. It's a run by the former head of Oxy or Continental or Whiting, both in the Bakken, and the type that we like is even in the low 50s. We think all three can generate free cash flow. To me, it's really interesting because as both of you speak, I'm thinking, all right, so if OPEC Plus is going to be cutting production and then you have rigs already coming off and probably cuts to production further in January from U.S. companies, you guys both are expecting much higher oil prices. Is that correct, Wells? I think I think there's upside from here. I think you rally. I mean, look, those those rigs will probably go back to work if you cross a 60 threshold again. The other thing that you have going on is the Midland differential is going to be coming in. So the prices that these guys are getting is going to be much higher in later in 19, even with a flat WTI price. So I, I think that the fundamentals are improving for all of these guys. I think that uh, uh, the realizations are going to improve for all of them. But but to your point, I think you're right. You do have more levers that are pressing oil up than down. And I, I would agree as well. I think you, the only thing I'm nervous about is if you get a snapback and it, and it goes up too quickly. Again, we've seen that happen. I mean, again, we're down almost over 40% since the 1st of October. Could we go up as quick? Probably not, but we certainly could go up very quickly. Wells, talk about um, cash flow, if you can, free cash flow at some of these companies. Which ones have it and which ones don't, and why would, they, would, why would that change your decision on what to invest in? Yeah, there's, there, there's a huge discrepancy across EMP, and it's interesting because in this recent pullback, 
everything's been hit relatively universally. And so you have companies like I'd highlight uh, PDC or, or, or MBL, Noble. Both of them have double-digit free cash flow yields in 2020. Both of them are trading at less than four times. These are high-quality companies with little to no debt and a lot of free cash flow. Now, on the other side, you have some small caps and micro caps that are going to be a little bit tighter, but you certainly have enough companies that, that, that fit that mold. They're growing under their own power with great assets. So I, I just am curious from your perspective, Neil, I'm looking right now at the uh, S&P 500 energy subsector. It's down... <laughs> A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you phrased it that way. Um, I have a feeling you are talking and trying to comfort a lot of your clients to soothe their, their tears, dry them up. <laughs> um, what makes you confident that we're going to see some stability from here? I, I think just the comments from some OPEC Plus. I mean, Clement mentioned that earlier. And I think by them more than willing to come in and, and you know, I would call that sort of the stabilization. You, you didn't have that prior to 16. 16 was the first time that you saw them in a material way come in. And now they're continuing to say that both Russia, both Saudi, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I think it's very unlikely if we do go under 50, we stay there long. Wells, if you loved energy stocks at 75, 65, <laughs> and 55, don't you have to really fall in love with them at 52? <laughs> I, I think that's right. Another thing that, that, that I'd note is that you are at multi-year lows on, on multiples. Uh, like we've talked about, you have a constructive setup in the commodity, both gas and oil. Uh, so I think I think now is the time to be buying. And I, I think when people sharpen their pencils going into January and start building books, I, uh, you could see a reversal in these names. When you guys talk to clients generally right now, Neil, any optimism whatsoever? Very, very little still. They're, they're doing the work, but they're, they're certainly not there. And this is both the big, long-only mutual funds here in town and the hedge funds and both what the mutual funds say is why be in energy if it's this volatile and you see tech or retail go up every other day. Well, maybe not go up every other day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Be, for be careful about those sharpened pencils. Yeah, the sharpened pencils can be, uh, can be daggers. Neil Dingman, uh, thank you so much. Wells Fitzpatrick, both of you, we really appreciate you coming in, both managing directors in the energy space for SunTrust Robinson Humphrey, based in Houston, Texas, but coming here to our frigid New York City in our 1130 studios here joining me and uh, my co-host and colleague, Pim Fox. The topic now, China, the Trump administration preparing a series of actions to call out Beijing for what it says are China's continued efforts to steal America's trade secrets and advanced technologies and compromise sensitive government and corporate computers. This all according to U.S. officials. Here to tell us more about the relationship between the United States and China is Michael Smart, Managing Director, Rock Creek Global Advisors. And previously, Mr. Smart was the Director for International Trade and Investment on the staff of the National Security Council at the White House, and he's previously served as International Trade Counsel on the Democratic staff of the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance. Thank you very much for being with us, Michael Smart. What can you tell us about the ongoing confrontation and challenges that the relationship between the United States and China face? 
Yeah, well, first I would say it is undoubtedly positive that the two leaders, Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, agreed uh, to avoid further escalation for now and agree to have discussions. That's the good news. The not-so-good news is I'm not optimistic that they can actually tackle the agenda that the U.S. has in mind over the 90-day period they set out for themselves. It involves some very difficult issue, uh, preferential treatment of Chinese state-owned enterprises. You mentioned violation of intellectual property rights, restriction on foreign ownership of Chinese enterprises. This is difficult stuff, and, and I don't think 90 days is nearly enough to tackle that. And tweets about uh, auto tariffs are really kind of a distraction from the core issue of structural reform. That's the, that's the first point. Well, Michael, I actually want to follow up on that. What is the primary agenda of the U.S.? I mean, is this a national security issue? Is this a trade deficit issue? You know, what's sort of the primary driver here? It's a really good question. So uh, the structural reforms are those that I mentioned. Those are the ones that uh, USTR, Lighthizer, and Liuha will be focused on in their negotiation. But I have a real question about whether China has enough incentive to make those reforms if the only thing on offer is the reduction of U.S. tariffs. And the reason is because they've seen this dispute spread into the areas, Lisa, you just mentioned, which is national security. And in these areas, they see the potential for even more harm uh, than, uh, than comes from the U.S. tariffs. And here I'm talking about export controls, so basically the denial of uh, U.S. technologies to Chinese companies, tight restrictions on inbound Chinese investment into the United States, uh, the, uh, the, the U.S. efforts around the world to encourage other uh, countries to keep Chinese telecommunications equipment out of their infrastructure. These and other efforts are, are undertaken by national security officials and I think are, are of concern uh, to the Chinese and will and will make the trade negotiation more difficult. Michael Smart, if there were to be Justice Department moves to announce indictments of hackers suspected of working for Chinese intelligence services and participating in espionage campaigns targeting U.S. networks, what would that do to the talks? Well, certainly it would make them more challenging. Uh, but those efforts must continue, and they must be on a, in a separate track. In the same way, uh, the detention and potential extradition of, uh, of, of, of Mrs. Meng, uh, the CFO um, of Huawei. Uh, these are uh, criminal law enforcement matters, national security matters, uh, and uh, the, the timing certainly complicates the early stages of this discussion, uh, but I don't expect them to be traded off at the negotiating table. You know, Michael Smart, since you did uh, serve as International Trade Council and the Democratic staff of the, uh, of the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance, I'm curious, from a partisan perspective, your take on what sides are, are for what trade negotiations? Because interestingly, uh, Democratic senators have come out in favor of the Huawei prosecutions, not that it's their say anyway, it's the federal court uh, in the Eastern District in Brooklyn. But I'm just wondering, you know, What's the common ground here between Republicans and Democrats as to how the U.S.-China trade relationship has to change? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of common ground um, uh, that the U.S. can't follow the same policy that it's followed in the past of bilateral dialogues and, and discussions that did not produce uh, adequate results. And so I think when they see this opportunity, uh, they're going to look for the same kinds of results, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, getting at structural issues that will improve U.S. access to the China market, both in terms of exports and investment, uh, for the long term. And, and I think there is a reluctance for the U.S. simply to be satisfied you know, with a series of uh, Chinese purchases of U.S. goods to maybe make a temporary reduction in the trade deficit. Yeah. They're looking for a more substantive deal. Michael, who dropped the ball then in not dealing with this earlier? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think you have to go back 20 years. I mean, uh, uh, certainly when China acceded to the WTO, there was an expectation that they were on the trajectory of economic reform. Uh, that changed in the late 2000s and became much more state-centric. And this year will be the first year that the private sector has actually contracted as a share of the Chinese economy. So lots of people got it wrong in trying to see where the Chinese economy was headed, and now we're trying to go back and do the reforms that are necessary for China to be really part of the international trading system. If a if an executive of an American company, a chief financial officer, for example, called Michael Smart for advice on whether he or she should go on a trip to China for business, what would you say? <laughs> I. I would say, uh, can you postpone that trip to the second quarter? I mean, uh, it, it's seriously. You know, I, 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 I really would. I, I mean, I hope uh, that uh, the evidence. Uh, and the case that they have against Mrs. Meng becomes clear. From the early reports, it does appear that she has some individual responsibility for the alleged sanctions violations that occurred. If that's true, then, then the, the, the course that the U.S. is taking will be seen as justified. And, and just one-off retaliation by the Chinese, that will be much harder for them uh, to undertake. But we don't know that yet. And so for the time being, I would let the waters calm and see if you can take care of that business a couple of months down the road. And that's certainly the advice that a number of big companies are telling their top executives right now. Michael Smart, thank you so much for being with us. Love your perspective. Michael Smart, Managing Director at Rock Creek Global Advisors in Washington, D.C. He's worked with the Senate on crafting trade policies, so coming from a very much informed view. turn our attention now to the big news of at least the beginning of the morning, and that was that China uh, is ostensibly uh, moving toward lowering tariffs on U.S.-made cars that are imported to the nation. Joining us now to talk about this is David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg. David, how big of a deal is this, considering the fact that imports to China's car market comprise an infinitesimal part of the cars that they sell? Yeah, I've, I've sort of wondered every time there seems to be progress with uh, a deal with China on car tariffs, uh, why Ford and GM stocks get a nice boost, and they've both been up uh, 2 or 3% at least today, uh, in a time when they're out of favor. Um, they don't sell 
very much over here, over there that's made here, basically. And, and really, most car makers are that way uh, because the tariffs have always been pretty big. Could they use some of their excess capacity maybe and, and sell it in China with lower tariffs? Possibly, but you still have shipping costs. You're still looking at a 15% tariff. It's, it's not a great business. No one's going to build a new plant in the U.S. because they can sell all those cars in China. It, do, it is a big deal for the German car makers, especially BMW. BMW exports more cars from the United States than any car maker, and they sell a lot of SUVs in China that are made in South Carolina. So it would certainly help them. It would certainly help Daimler, which owns Mercedes. And that's kind of about it. Uh, you're, you're really not seeing a lot of cars go that way. It's maybe more of a sentiment play uh, where, okay, if Trump is happy, maybe he will rattle the saber less and do fewer things with, uh, with tariffs on other commodities, other products with other markets. I, I think maybe that's what's going on. David, the, uh, the majority of the vehicles that are made by U.S. automakers that are sold in China are made in China, right? Right, and usually with a joint venture partner. So GM shares about half of its income with one of a couple of partners they have. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it just makes more sense to do it over there because of the long shipping lines and that sort of thing. And, and the tariffs have always made it almost impossible. Cadillac sold vehicles to start that were made in the U.S., but that was just kind of a way to introduce the brand to the Chinese consumer while getting plants up and running that were actually going to make the cars over there. Between GM and Ford, who potentially benefits more from a potential thawing in Chinese tariffs or other restrictions in car makers from the U.S. going to China? Probably at this point, Ford, because they're, they're still trying to expand over there. GM got a jump by setting up shop in China in the 90s, uh, and, and Ford is also manufacturing vehicles over there. But if if the tariff barriers do come down, there are other vehicles that they may want to want to send from here to there uh, while they get manufacturing up and running. It's not a bad way to test the market and see if, if consumers over there like a certain model. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think given that Ford's kind of behind GM in, in developing the brand and, and a consumer following in China, it could help them more. How about Tesla? Does this really benefit them? It could, although they're talking about manufacturing over there, and, uh, and and they've got plans for a factory in China underway. But yeah, it certainly would help them because even though their cars are already expensive, um, and and wealthier consumers are buying them, those are pretty big tariffs they've had to pay on things like the Model S and Model Three. With it, you know, getting up to production, uh, I'm, I'm sure they'd love to sell cars in China. And uh, you know, 15% tariff is still a pretty big disadvantage. But when you're one of the few companies selling an all-electric car, um, it, it certainly would help them kickstart things until they can get the cash and get everything going to get a, a new factory up and running in China. And by the way, we know how long it takes Tesla to get full production at a new factory going. <laughs> so they could be exporting cars from here for quite a while, if, if that was the plan. David Welch, the cars that are made by U.S. automobile makers are not necessarily cars, right? They're pickup trucks. Isn't that what they make here in the United States? Yeah, and, and sport utility vehicles. Yeah, quite a yeah. few of them, sure. Are those the kind of cars that the Chinese consumer wants? Chinese consumers aren't buying pickup trucks the way Americans do, but SUVs, absolutely. In a lot of ways, Chinese consumer tastes are very similar to what Americans like. 
before the SUV craze, they liked big, long sedans. And that, that was always a, a, a truly American thing. If you go back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, well, really 50s and 60s, there, there were British political cartoons about these ridiculously long American sedans. And Chinese have always, the Chinese consumers always liked a big sedan. And then when there were many more SUVs available, they started latching onto those. And, and, and it's very similar. Not, not quite the urban cowboy pickup market over there. But uh, that could develop as, as construction continues, uh, and you know, once the economy kind of gets back into to overdrive there. But it's very much a sport utility vehicle market at this point. Thanks very much, David Welch, our Detroit bureau chief for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PNL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.